Welcome to RJ Court Watch, a legal podcast produced by RH Reality Check and hosted by senior legal analysts Jessica Mason Piclo and Imani Gandhi. This episode, we talk about the Little Sisters of the Poor case and their crusade against the birth control benefit. It goes without saying, Imani, that the legal attacks against the birth control benefit are, I think, really very thinly veiled political attacks against health care reform, as we've talked about a bunch on this show. But I really think that's why it's also important to talk through the Little Sisters case. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to start by talking about is just the plaintiffs, Little Sisters, these nuns who are taking on the big bad Obama administration, huh? Yeah, I mean, the, the, they make a they make great plaintiffs, right? I mean, they they make really, really good plaintiffs, these nuns who are, you know, very religious, very pious, and the big bad Obama administration is forcing them to cover contraception, forcing nuns who don't even have sex to cover contraception and how horrible it is that that, you know, the Obama administration would do such a thing to these poor little sweet nuns. And it's just it's just ridiculous, as as Bridget will will talk about there's nothing that could ever happen that could force the little sisters of the poor to provide contraception coverage in their health insurance plans. Right. So one of the reasons we decided to spotlight the little sisters case is because it's one of the cases that um, still lives after this summer's um, fights in Hobby Lobby and, and Wheaton College and very well could find its way up before the Roberts Court again. But also because it really is this great snapshot into just how political um, these attacks are. So like you said, you know, it's the sweet little innocent nuns um, who it's, you know, almost as if it sounds like the Obama administration is forcing them to actually take birth control. So they have this church plan that basically says they never, ever have to provide birth control under any circumstances. So really, we have a, you know, pretty perfectly chosen plaintiff, a lot like the buffer zone cases, to put forward this this fight. Um, And I don't think that that political posturing really gets enough light. Right. And, you know, and it's something that just occurred to me. Why hasn't any court said, um, excuse me, ladies, but your case is moot because you were never going to have to provide contraceptive coverage? I mean, there's sort of a stand in for a bunch of other religious organizations that are battling the birth control benefit. But these particular plaintiffs why do they even have a case? It's an excellent question. And I think um, one that hopefully the courts get to um, sooner rather than later, you know, in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, Priests for Life has sort of taken on this issue and, and is doing a little sort of presto changeo with the courts there that says, well, even if that's the case and even if, um, you know, the, the law says that these church plans don't have to comply with the birth control benefit anyhow, you should still give us these exemptions because it's just the principle of it. And I I think there tilts the hand to say that this really is not about contraception. I mean, it is, but it's not. It's about um, basically anybody who wants to be treated as a church, um, as far as the religious right is concerned, to have that ability to avoid certain parts of complying with laws that they don't like. Yeah, I mean, some th- all of these cases have been so politicized, and I think Little Sisters of the Poor is a perfect example of the politicization of the birth control benefit. I mean, at this point... I. I- I I really never thought two years ago when all of this started that we would still be here two years later and that we would be staring down the barrel of another two, three, four years of contraception mandate cases because, you know, the Obama administration created this accommodation and then 
the the Supreme Court said in Wheaton in the Wheaton College interim order, well, maybe the accommodation is also a violation of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So the Obama administration, basically being the pushovers that they are at this point, I mean, I'm sorry to say it, I, I love I love me some President Obama, but he needs to stop mucking around with the with the accommodation to the birth control benefit because what they've done is accommodated the accommodation, which therefore essentially renders the original accommodation a violation of the law because we have this whole least restrictive means test and the the government has to use the least restrictive means to advance its interests. Well, the basic by revising the accommodation before the Supreme Court has even had a chance to rule on it, the Obama administration has basically admitted that that accommodation is not the least restrictive means. One of the things that I think um, is really great about the explanation that you give there is that not only is it become politicized from the right, but by bending over backwards, it's inadvertently become politicized by the Obama administration, too. And it's ridiculous because what we're talking about um, is health care, right? Birth control is health care. Contraception is health care. I don't know how many times we have had to say that. Um, and people still just aren't quite getting that. You know, one of the other things that um, occurred to me, too, is in the context of these um, cases being largely political attacks against healthcare reform, they really depend on making sure that people stay very confused, not only about the benef- the birth control benefit, but about who's challenging them, what the Obama administration is doing. Um, and thankfully, you've been able to cut through some of that confusion in um, particularly brilliant style with your explanation via GIFs, huh? Yeah, yeah. I actually had a lot of fun with that particular post because, you know, I've we, the both of us have we've been writing about this stuff for a couple of years now, and every so often I find myself just sort of confused as to what we're talking about, which particular religious organizations, whether they're nonprofit, for profit, churches, just universities. What's the accommodation? What's the accommodation to the accommodation? How does Hobby Lobby fit in? How does Wheaton College? I mean, it's very confusing stuff. So I sat down and I decided that I'm going to try to break it down in really simple layperson's terms and use GIFs. You know, if people want to check that post out, it's, you know, if you just Google gift explanation of the birth control benefit or go to rhrealitycheck.org forward slash ABLC, it's one of the few posts that I've um, published so far on Angry Black Lady Chronicles, which has just been launched at RH Reality Check, which is very exciting. Hooray. But, you know, give it a read because I've heard from people that, you know, that even people who are in our field, that that explanation, that gift explanation was actually very helpful to sort of pare down what exactly is going on. So hopefully people will get something out of it. And then we'll be a little bit more cognizant of what their rights are and how it is. The religious right is essentially using lawsuits, using um, religion as a weapon to basically strip women of rights to which they are entitled. I am looking into a way that we can submit the gift explanation to the Roberts court as an amicus brief in the next <laughs> round of contraception benefit litigation, because I think that there are five conservatives on the bench who would really benefit from the clear and concise explanation via, you know, hysterical animation that is provided in that post. Well, I think that would be hilarious. You know, I would love for my gift explanation to be cited in a Supreme Court opinion. I mean, Erin Carmon was lucky enough to have one of her um, articles, I think on Eden Foods, cited in, in uh, several opinions. So, hey, let's get a gift, gift explanation cited in a, in, a, in a court opinion. That would be lovely. Mm-hmm. 
So the Supreme Court starts in October, and it feels like we're picking up right where we left off at the end of June, and that's talking about lawsuits challenging the birth control benefit in the Affordable Care Act. Only instead of Hobby Lobbies and Eden Foods and Conestoga Wood Specialties for-profit challenges to the requirement, we have lawsuits from groups like Little Sisters of the Poor, Priests for Life, Wheaton College, and the University of Notre Dame. These folks claim the process developed by the administration that allows the institutions to essentially become exempt from the rule and thus not cover contraception for their employees is itself too burdensome. We're going to walk through those claims and where they stand now since it's looking pretty likely that at least one of those cases I just mentioned will end up before the Roberts Court. Thankfully, we have Bridget Amiri, who's a senior staff attorney at the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project, who's going to help us walk through the Little Sisters claim, the contraception litigation that lives post-Hobby Lobby, and help us figure out what on earth is going on here. So thank you so much, Bridget, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, So we recently learned that the religious nonprofits challenging the birth control benefit have rejected once again the Obama administration's latest efforts to accommodate their religious concerns. Um, Let's walk through for the audience, first of all, what is in the Obama administration's last revision? Sure. So for religiously affiliated nonprofit organizations under the uh, contraception rule under the Affordable Care Act, uh, they have always been able to uh, be uh, to take advantage of the accommodation, which is a form that they send to their insurance company that says, I have an, have an objection to providing uh, co- contraception coverage, uh, and end of story. And so that piece of paper goes to the insurance company. The insurance company is then responsible for communicating with the employer's employees and providing the benefit directly. So the employer pays nothing. They don't communicate with the employees. All they do is fill out a form. And a number of nonprofit organizations sued over this requirement and said, just filling out that form um, is a violation of my constitutional right, or my rights under RIFRA, I should say. Uh, but uh, the administration, um, the Obama administration, has um, gone a step further to try to accommodate uh, the religious beliefs of these religiously affiliated nonprofits and said that instead of filling out the form, what you can do is send us, the government, a letter, and we will communicate with your insurance company uh, to tell them that they are now responsible for communicating with your employees. So it's an augmentation of the original accommodation. And these groups are objecting to this augmentation now. How? So the groups are saying that there is basically no change and that um, it doesn't change their objection. They objected to filling out the form and sending it to their insurance company. They similarly object to sending a piece of paper, some sort of letter or however they want to communicate to the government to tell them that they have an objection. They say there's really no difference um, in the process in terms of substantially burdening their religious beliefs. The audience is pretty familiar at this point with the Hobby Lobby decision at the end of the term and, um, you know, the Roberts Court and the drama closing out its term with that decision. But right after the court issued this interim order in one of these nonprofit challenges in the Wheaton College case that said effectively, for the moment for Wheaton College, you can avoid complying with this requirement. With the court's decision in Hobby Lobby, it seems pretty clear, or at least the opinion seemed pretty clear, that one of the reasons groups like Hobby Lobby could avoid the contraception requirement was because this accommodation existed. And now the accommodation has been called into question. Is it really under threat, in your opinion, or um, is this sort of much ado about nothing from the nonprofit's perspective? Well, 
we think that these, these these lawsuits filed by the nonprofits have always been much ado about nothing. How possibly could filling out a piece of form saying that you have a religious objection ever substantially burden your religious beliefs? So we've always thought that there has been nothing to these lawsuits. Um, but particularly in light of the Hobby Lobby decision, what's important is that Justice Kennedy provides the fifth vote for the majority decision. And very specifically, he says that the reason why um, there is an, an alternative mechanism um, for the government to further its goal of ensuring women have coverage, which is part of the, the test under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, um, is whether there's another way for the government to achieve its goals. Um, Justice Kennedy says there is another um, way to do this, and it is the accommodation. And so hopefully that spells out the fact that the accommodation itself is um, integral to this um, entire program and, uh, and that it's not at risk. Let's talk about the Little Sisters and their church plan for a minute, because I think that this is one of those details that's really important and gets lost in the shuffle and is easily confused. So without getting into the boggy details of ERISA, another federal law that um, governs employee health plans, what sort of generally speaking is a church plan and how is it coming into play in some of these challenges? Right. So a church plan is a religiously affiliated funded plans. So the Christian Brothers Trust, for example, runs the uh, health plan for Little Sisters of the Poor. They are considered a church plan under the federal law, ERISA. And church plans are not subject to the contraception rule. So there is no way in which um, a church plan would ever have to comply with the contraception rule. And so that's um, why the Little Sisters of the Poor claim is even more weak than any of the other religiously affiliated nonprofits because nobody um, is ever going to get contraception coverage if they work for Little Sisters of the Poor because the uh, insurance company um, doesn't have to comply with the contraception rule um, because of this uh, church plan issue. It strikes me as a little bit cynical then to have the face of the nonprofit challenges in this case being an organization called the Little Sisters of the Poor, you know, those those nuns who then would never really be under any risk of of actually engaging in behavior that they believe violates their religious beliefs because their employees are never getting contraception anyway. Uh, that's exactly right. So their cases should never be going forward in the courts. Um, they, they have suffered no harm, nof- suffered no injury. It's pretty shocking in their briefs that they talk about uh, all of the harm that will come to them if they have to comply with this law when they completely ignore the fact that um, this is a church plan and nobody is ever getting coverage. Uh, so it's just, it's, it's pretty shocking and, and th- those cases should just be simply dismissed. One of the arguments that I've seen bubble up in, in the briefing and I think is a really interesting argument, you know, as lawyers, we, we like to make analogies and distinguish from, from situations all the time, is that we have this precedent in this long legal history of granting exemptions from the law based on religious objections. And one of the examples that comes to mind are conscientious objectors, draft objectors. And I think that it's really important to talk about how the claims by the religious nonprofits in this case are not like draft objector claims, since we do have this long history. And from where I'm standing, at least, it appears like one of the goals of the religious nonprofit challenges broadly is to really blow open this process for claiming religious objections 
I think that's absolutely right. And obviously at the ACLU, we are completely committed to uh, someone's opposition to the draft, for example, based on their religious opposition to war. And I do think you are absolutely right that it's important to to distinguish this case from that situation. And I think um, Judge Posner, who wrote the decision in the Notre Dame case um, um, for the Seventh Circuit, um, explains this brilliantly. So he says basically that uh, what the religiously affiliated nonprofit in these cases is trying to do is not just say, I don't want to participate in the draft because of my religious beliefs. They are basically saying, I won't even tell the draft that I have a religious objection to participating in the war because by doing so, you will have to draft somebody else to fight in the war. And so another analogy that was used by the Sixth Circuit is uh, that has also found that there's no religious uh, beliefs that are substantially burdened here is that if a judge has a religious objection to sitting on a uh, death penalty case, um, that judge has to fill out um, a piece of paper basically and says, I'd like to recuse myself um, and allow another judge um, to take over. And uh, what the analogy is there is that the religiously affiliated nonprofits are basically saying that that judge should be able to say, I don't even, I shouldn't even have to fill out that piece of paper because what it will mean is that another judge will sit and hear a capital punishment case. Um, so, uh, I, so I think that those are really great analogies to show how far the religiously affiliated nonprofits in these cases are trying to go. They don't have to cover contraception. All they have to do, consistent with their religious beliefs, is fill out a form saying they have an objection to do so, to doing so, and then their insurance company takes care of everything else. What about the argument that is that they're starting to make that well? This is also forcing us to keep a contractual relationship with an organization, the insurance company, who would provide contraception. And therefore, we're still facilitating sin, the sort of, you know, forced, coerced contract theory. What about that? It's just still so attenuated. So they contract with a major corporation um, in many instances. So many of these insurance companies are are, are very big or companies like Blue Cross Blue Shields and things like that. And uh, so they are contracting with this very large organization. And uh, um, but none of their 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 dollars, none of their money is going to pay for that contract. Um, so it's it's completely attenuated in the first place. But um, uh, even if it were, I mean, the whole purpose of insurance is that you know all of this money gets pulled together and then pays out a whole host of claims. And so their arguments are just so um, so many steps removed from actually uh, doing anything that really um, substantially burdens their religious beliefs. One of the solutions that I saw floated by the religious nonprofits is to, well, just let the Obama administration provide the contraception to those employees or the contraception coverage to those employees directly. The cynic in me um, doesn't believe that that's really a possible solution that the uh, challenges are interested in. How would that work even? Do you have any idea? Right. Well, I think the other interesting thing is that for all of these religiously affiliated nonprofits that are saying that the Obama administration should cover the cost of contraception or that Title X, which is a federally funded program that provides a contraception to low-income individuals, um, it could be another solution. They should put their money where their mouth is and they should be lobbying Congress to uh, increase the budget for Title X, for example. Uh, but putting that aside, um, it, it's 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 not a workable solution. Uh, so women should have seamless coverage in their health care. They should not be forced 
like second-class citizens to get their health care from some other entity because their employer has a religious objection um, to not even providing that coverage in these circumstances, just to filling out a form. So uh, we want women to have seamless coverage. One of the things I wanted to ask you before we wrap up is the Little Sisters of the Poor case is pending in the Tenth Circuit and, and Priest for Life is in the D.C. Court of Appeals. What do you think the chances of the Roberts Court hearing a nonprofit case this term? What do you think those chances are? Uh, there is a chance. So actually, Notre Dame was one of the first uh, cases decided at the Court of Appeals level by the Seventh Circuit. And so Notre Dame has, I believe, until early October to decide whether to file a petition for certiorari to the U.S. Supreme Court to ask the Supreme Court to review that case. So uh, depending upon whether Notre Dame decides to do that or um, Michigan Catholic Conference, which was the decision out of the Sixth Circuit um, relatively recently, um, the entire Sixth Circuit decided uh, not to rehear that case and to allow the decision stand saying that uh, there was no RIFRA violation there. Uh, so that case could also um, be one of the, the first cases to get to the Supreme Court. So I think there's a good chance there are a couple in the pipelines, depending upon what the plaintiffs decide to do. Bridget, as always, you can just walk us through this in a way that not many people can. Thank you so much for your time and helping explain what on earth is going on after the Hobby Lobby decision with these uh, nonprofits. I'm sure we'll be talking to you again because these cases aren't going anywhere anytime soon. True, even though they should. Yes, agree. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to RJ Court Watch and be sure to catch all of our reporting and analysis on the contraception benefit at www.rhrealitycheck.org.